They listened to Bo Burnham or other people came in to listen to Bo Burnham. But Parker doesn't have any real internet presence. You know, she's indie theater, indie film. The first time I met her, I, I'm sure it was like second or third hand through you. I was yeah. um, at a party with our, our mutual friend Jeff yeah. and she was there and she spent the entire time talking about how she was getting into Instagram. But then you had her on the show and I feel like she's almost purposely dragging her heels. I don't think she wants, which I, is fine, but I don't yeah. think she wants to embrace social. No. She wants to be a movie star. Which she is. Yeah. And that's okay, right? Yeah, I think so. And she, she doesn't have to. Why do it if you don't have to? And she has more than enough interaction with people. People coming up to her all the time and all that. If anything, she wants some peace and quiet with her with her dog. Do you have a little harbor, a little jealousy for people who are able to completely unplug? I don't know. I mean, I don't use this stuff for anything but work. But it's interesting. I do, I do see this book, I mean, the Team Human book, as an end cap. I kind of want to now, I want to live life. I've been living so at the mercy of technology and media and incoming. In some ways, this is a book about, not just about humanity, but about me. You know, about unplugging? I, well, about my relationship to technology and media, that, that I'm comfortable using it, but I don't like when it uses me. And there's this point at which it tips over and all of a sudden it's like my inbox is this friggin' burden and all these people and expectations and stuff and uh, it's just I don't and I guess I never learned how to construct good social boundaries I feel like I owe people no matter so someone comes up to me oh I need you to help advise me on this company I want to start or my son wants to go to college can you talk to him about what college to go to and as if I owe that woman I've never met. I owe her that for her kid to figure, help figure this thing out. Yeah, but I mean, there's two things at play here, right? There's that idea, but there's also just the, again, I, I think you're also like Parker, are a social individual and are somebody who likes to talk and engage with people. So there's an aspect of that there as I well. I do, but my social impulses, which I would argue in, in most circumstances are healthy, that these are, <laughs> you know, 500,000 years of evolution mm -hmm. have open me to other people, made me want to connect, that they are amplified or leveraged by social media in a way that's destructive to me. They're exploits. I mean, the beauty of the internet is, is accessibility. But if you yourself aren't able to filter through that, then you're basically plugged in all the time. And you are accessible to everyone and yeah. everything. And not just humans, but a lot of non-player characters are coming in. You know, it used to be as just a few robocalls and telemarketers would come into your life uninvited. And now it's millions of algorithms are honed on you just trying to find any vulnerability to extract your time, your data. The book is out in the world. And again, if this was sort of a bookend to that portion of your life, what does your life look like post-book? I think what my life looks like post-book is realizing that, you know, I mean, the book is an industrial age, you know, device, I guess, an industrial age medium, but it amplifies your signal. And now I want to go live the scaled life. You know, an author is not living a life in scale, at least not anymore. What does that mean, scale? On a human scale, I'm not reaching hundreds of times more than Dunbar's number of the number of social connections a person can maintain. You want to live life in real time. In real time and at real at real size, at real scale, meaning, thankfully, I'm not Stephen Colbert or somebody who's living a larger-than-life role. Or if I did for the last 20, 30 years, even, even reaching the whatever, you know, 10 or 20 or 50,000 people I normally reach, even that is... 
a particular way of connecting with the world? What about connecting with the 50 students a semester who want to take my courses and be with me in real space? What about connecting with the people in my town, the actual friends I've made? This is a pervasive idea, I think, in a lot of your works. We've talked a lot over the years, and one of the times that I spoke to you, you you had had a book come out, forgive me for forgetting the title, but you went into depth into the idea of a sort of localized currency in the area that you were living in. Right. I mean, that's sort of a version of this, is to engage with the local. Right, and not to feel, I mean, and the web does tend to make us feel like we haven't accomplished anything if our idea hasn't scaled up. If you're doing a podcast and 1,200 people in your community are listening to it and loving it. If you send a tweet out and it doesn't get 50 likes, what was yeah, the point? what was the point, right, if a tweet drops in a forest yeah. or- you know, <laughs> but there's there's that. What about reaching thirty people a year really deeply? What about reaching ten people in your community? What about changing the way the block that you live on interacts? And what if only the people on your block really find out that their lives are utterly changed for the innovations that you've brought to your block? Is that okay? Of course, it's okay. It's actually better than you know us needing one person to tell everybody you know how to run things. There's something rewarding in knowing that people are reading your stuff and that they're being impacted by it. Yeah, but I've been rewarded since 1994 <laughs> for that. It's time to pass the baton yeah, on. That's maybe? part of why I started the Team Human podcast. And originally, wasn't even thinking of doing a book. I started Team Human podcast saying, "Look, I've I've got this platform. I've got this audience. I have reach. You know, people kind of respect me as a filter on." what's out there. So why don't I have the great conversations that I get to have because of who I am, right? I get, and and, and it's not that I'm e- egotistical about it. I'm just realistic about it. I can call certain people and get to have a conversation with them. And why don't I have the conversation with them that people really want to have? Mm-hmm. And, and in return for getting to have that conversation, share it with 20, 30, 40,000 people who want to listen to it. Part of the idea is essentially just doing what you would do otherwise. Do what I would do otherwise. I mean, or start to do what I really want to do and use the platform I have to give voice to other people. Find people who are doing interesting things. Who's the next me? You know, <laughs> you know, who's the next you? And, and get, let's get them the platform and the traction they need. You know, there's nothing richer in a person's legacy than the other people that whose journeys they've they've catalyzed. Let's back way up then. So when you first started doing this, when you first started becoming the the you that we know and putting the material into the world that we're familiar with, what was the vision then? Originally I wanted to make people less afraid of technology. Because I mean I was the guy I would get, you know, laughed out of editorial meetings when I would say, I want to do an article about this thing that's going to happen called email. Your bio on your Amazon page has a couple of great tidbits on it, one of which is that a book that you were pitching in the early 90s was initially shelved because they thought that the internet was going to be a fact. It got canceled, right? My book, Siberia, C-I-B-E-R-I-A. I got this letter from Bantam, you know, a few months before it was supposed to be published that they said, look, we, we've been, you know, looking around and we think that 
um, the internet will likely be over. By the time the, the publishing the time, cycle by yeah, this book comes out. By the time it comes out. They, yeah. And they said, uh, you know, it, we think that uh, the internet's going to be kind of like CB radio. We think it's already, this was 1993. We said, we think it's peaked and that it's actually going down now. And that, I mean, that's such a fun story because it gets to be like, oh, I was right. Yeah. You were wrong and all that. You've been pretty right. And I turned out to, yeah, most yeah. of these things, sometimes a little too early, but usually right. I mean, and unpopular things. So it was unpopular to say that these West Coast weirdos were going to create this technology that was going to take over everything and run Wall Street. That is such a crazy jump, the jump from the hippies, that sort of, that Steve Jobs bridge into being the most- But then I was wrong, uh, again, I was considered wrong for saying that by 1994, uh uh-oh, Wired Magazine's come, they're going to detour this whole thing from an expression of human potential to a business thing. Oh, that'll never happen, it's never going to happen. Then it became a business thing. Then 1996, seven, I went to South By and I said- this dot-com boom, it's going to bust. A couple of months after 2000, people are going to go from being forward-leaning futurists to being presentists in 2000. And, and they said, oh, yeah, crazy. Then it crashes. And I say, don't worry. This new kind of medium, let's call it social media, is going to come. And they oh, no, the internet's over. Then social media happens. Then I say, oh, no, social media is going to turn into this algorithmic, extractive, horrible thing. And and I did this throwing rocks to the Google Bus book saying that the growth of these companies is not actually serving people. As they get richer, the people are going to get poorer. The division of wealth is going to get worse. Oh, you're crazy. This is all good. Aren't you a libertarian like us? And and, you know, and finally, now I'm in a place where I'm saying it's not too late that that human beings really can retake control of these technologies, that we've reversed the kind of the cart and the horse. We're doing technology to people now that your technologies are acting on you more than you are acting through them. I want to explore that a little bit before we do. I want you to give me real quick one thing you got really wrong. I didn't think and I should have listened to McLuhan on this, I guess. I didn't think that the Internet would become television. I really didn't. I didn't think people would surrender the creative potential of the technology. To sort of adapt the forms of old mediums. Yeah. But, you know, McLuhan always said, you know, the the, the last medium will become the content of the next medium. So televisions become the content of the Internet. And I guess there's a duh in that. I didn't think that people would surrender the possibilities so quickly. I thought that the net, I mean, I see it now. I thought the net would engender uh, camaraderie and solidarity. It has in pockets. Yeah, but across boundaries. And it turns out, no, of course, the internet is discrete. It's a yes, no, one, zero medium. So it's ended up accentuating boundaries. It's ended up leading more to Brexit and building walls between us and Mexico. That's a very, uh, that's a very digital sensibility that's uh, uh, at play right now. Let's get back to the positive. And, and, and again, this is another overarching theme in so much of what you've done. And this is a thing that I really love and respect about you is – that you have somehow through most of this been an optimist and been able to see the good. When you talk sort of early on about the optimistic potential of things like the internet, that's in stark contrast to most or a lot of people who do speculative fiction, sci-fi, right? They always tend to see sort of the dystopian and the worst. What's kept you positive throughout? That life finds a way. You know, I really... You went full Goldblum on me for that one. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, uh... I think it does. You know, I I, I remember, I I always think about it. Shortly before my grandfather died, I was walking him around this apartment in uh, Riverdale. And it was like the winter. It was freezing. You know, I didn't want his bones to break. And we saw this kind of sumac plant that pushed up through the 
uh, crack in the sidewalk. And that's when he said that. He goes, look at that. Life, life finds a way, you know. Um, it wasn't Jurassic Park, but it was a, a sumac. And I was like, well, you know, you know, from the ashes rises the phoenix and all that. And I, I do see it. And, you know, you just people just want someone to to plant the flag and they gather. I was so surprised. You know, usually with my books, I'm five, ten years ahead. And then someone else goes and writes the same book later and gets the <laughs> credit, you know, which is fine. But this one, I feel like I hit on the moment rather than ahead of the moment. I did an event in New York. And even, I mean, I got Seth Godin doing one event with me and Naomi Klein doing another event with me. What book has those people that that different you know yeah, she, i mean she does not strike me as a an optimist necessarily oh, no not necessarily but certainly not in the same world as as a a, a marketing guru kind of like seth and but we i did this event with seth at um at betaworks labs and you know 200 or so people pile in there and it felt like this was the moment of declaring revolution it felt like these people were all going you know i just got to this point myself where i decided i'm not going to run my company like that anymore i'm not going to build this technology anymore i'm not going to work that way i'm not going to use my devices like because everyone was coming to that same realization of okay screw this all hands on deck let's make this a pro-cultural pro-human pro-social uh uh, movement in aa and all of those programs, it's, it's what they refer to as hitting bottom. Things had to get really bad. <laughs> when things start to get bad on a sort of a national level and, and when it feels like worst case scenario, maybe that's what it takes for people to start to band together. Right. I just don't know yet whether we are, you know, the Jews of Auschwitz making menorahs out of tinfoil, you know, that there's that moment Very of optimism. Yeah, but you know what I mean, that they were being optimistic. And we find those. Are those, are those signs of hope or signs of sadness? Is it that or are we actually taking charge and steering this thing? You know, in other words, there's a certain to find hope in just sitting together with other people is a beautiful thing, but it's also a sign of just how awful it is. We've realized if we've come to realize that just sit, getting to sit together is itself such a privilege. I just got back from CES and a trend that I've been seeing a lot in consumer electronics over the past several years is this idea or hope that technology can be used to reverse some of the effects of technology. The techno-solutionism against techno-solutionism. Four or five years ago, it was Fitbit and then the Apple Watch. And now we'll have to talk about this later off the podcast because I think this is like right up your alley. But I wrote a piece about the largest overarching trend that, that I saw at the show were mental health and sleep solutions. It's the wellness thing. But the VCs decided this two years ago. So now... They were all doing ayahuasca in the hills. And they decided they were. They were all doing ayahuasca trips and they came back. And that's when I started to get all the calls. Two years ago, do you know any wellness apps? (laughs) Do you know any people, startups who are doing wellness? You know, because whoever, Mary Meeker or somebody, declares that that's the thing or or the Flatiron guys or Sequoia. And then everybody's chasing it. No, you know, uh, I know there's these other apps that are like basically nudging people to be better and it's still doing technology to people it's technologies playing people instead of people playing technologies and the more we accept that we need to be tech handled no i don't buy it and that's why and i understand the intent behind a lot of it so you know you look at um uh uh, the humane technology guys Mm -hmm. you know and they're sweet 
people. I understand it. They worked at these companies. They went to B.J. Fogg's Captology classes at Stanford. They figured out how to do streaks and how to use slot machine algorithms to get people addicted to machines. They made a few million dollars. They took a couple of years off, and now they realized, oh, that's really horrible. So now they start, you know, Center for Humane Technology. But just the construction shows their bias. So we're going to make humane technologies, technologies that treat people more humanely, the same way we're going to treat cage-free chickens more humanely as we raise them and kill them. Technology as a concept is, is neutral, right? I mean, just technology itself is benign. Technology depends on the technology. But every technology, even if the intent is to connect people to others, every technology does necessarily alienate you from your organic essential self. So even language as a technology, it was important and beautiful and great and allowed us to say, go over to this side, go over to that side, and you kill the saber-toothed tiger. Great. It was, but it also, by naming things, it reduced the possibility. Every time you have a noun that declares what something is, you've defined it and reduced it. It led to certain kinds of cause and effect thinking. It was, it abstracted us. This is why, you know, while you or I might decide we're going to go on a digital media fast for two days in order to reset, there's still monks who won't talk for 30 days because what they want to do, they, they understand that language is software and that if you accept that software as a given, then you're going to mistake the language for reality. You're going to mistake the map for the territory. So um, all technologies are both. I don't think you can ascribe necessarily good or evil as an inherent characteristic to any technologies. It depends. Well, you could, you could ascribe evil to, say, capitalism. Sure. But for example, these are all biases that we have, but you know, maybe there's almost an ableist bias in that there are people who otherwise wouldn't be able to communicate with others without the use of technology. Right. And there's people who wouldn't be alive without the use yeah. of drugs. But that doesn't mean we want to use Roundup on our on yeah. our crops either. Opening the door to something doesn't necessarily means it needs to be pervasive. Right. I mean, and if everybody, gosh, if everybody looked at every technology they used as a drug, it would be we would be profoundly better with this stuff. It's like, okay, am I going to use television now? Do I want to be on television? Do I want to be on email? And if I am, okay, I'm going to go on email. If you thought about the when you install an app on your phone as if you were putting a chemical into your body, because you almost are, you're putting an operating system with biases into your day, into your workflow, into your device. It'd be great. I mean, that's why even if you decide, I'm, I mean, I, I know we don't have time for this now, but if we decided before you spoke, you say, I'm going to go on English now. What does that mean? Oh, it means a lot. What about the syntax of English works in certain ways? It, it was, it was politicized by kings when they developed King's English and different words and his and her and you and thou and all that. You know, when of was changed from ov, ovum, women to of to disconnect it from the woman who it was the container. I mean, what was all that? I mean, that was politics. This sounds almost like crippling, though, like having to, before you say a word, c consider no, the history. But, I mean, you could. I mean, it would be great. It would be like a reconstructionist Jew. They, that's their kind of thing, you know. It would Look just at the be meaning like, of everything. I'll, I'm going to get back to you in a day with my answer to yeah, that question. But could you imagine if you just took a second or two before speaking and realized, right. I'm going to use words now. I understand they're going to fall short. And I really should make sure that 
I take into account the way my words are going to fall short before I interact with this person right across mm. from me. And when you know that's going to happen, yeah. that's when you start using their eyes. That's when you start using their rate of breathing. That's when you start actually establishing rapport with the other person. So does language create rapport or repel rapport? Well, it does a little bit of both. But if you realize that, that my language might make a wall as easily as it'll make a bridge, then you look for the other, the deeper stuff. And then when we went from language to text, oh my God, the rabbis were so upset. Oh no, we're going to lose the memory of the stories. If people aren't telling the stories live in person to each other, they're not going to mean the same thing. Once they're down, they're going to become sacred. People are going to use them in these literal ways rather than metaphorical ways. They're not going to know it in their body. It's not going to require that people be together. Then some other rabbi says, well, it's okay. We'll make sure if you read the Torah, you've got to have 10 people there, a minion, in order to open it. So they made a rule to try to re-socialize a process that they understood was going to become alienating. It sounds like you're entering a new phase in your life, both with regards to what you're doing professionally and just being able to kind of unplug on a daily basis. Well, right. I mean, and part of the flip for me was I've started writing this book and it's not a book about something so much as a book that is a thing in, in and of itself. In other words, it's not a book that read this book in order to do better in business. Read this book in order to be a that. That's got to be a much more difficult pitch with the publisher. Yeah. I mean, and it's why Portfolio didn't want to do it. Penguin, where I was. They were like, we don't get this. What, you know, <laughs> what, what, what do you do with it? You know, and then, I mean, I actually went with the publisher who offered the least amount of money. <laughs> That's a smart guy. Yeah. I'm that way. I'm yeah. just a smart business That's person. That's why you're a multi-billionaire investor. Go. No, I went with Norton. I mean, and partly because they're a co-op. They're great. They're, they're owned great. by the editors. And the person I spoke with was like, oh, I get it. This book actually is going to have object value. In other words, the purpose of this book is for people to read this book. And I was like, you get it. <laughs> Meaning that the book itself is an experience. In other words, okay. most people don't like to read. They read a book because you're going to skim this book in yeah. order to get some okay. thing. I mean, and this is a book that the it's meant that the experience of this book reifies the sanctity of being human. I am making a case for humans. You know, humans are despised now. We can't even tell the difference between humans and zombies anymore. We've got guys like Ray Kurzweil saying we should surrender consciousness to the robots, to the machines. And we've got Google building a home for his brain. This is crazy. You know, we really think that we can create a map of, hum of human consciousness that somehow serves the same purpose as if human beings are here for some utilitarian reason. Yeah, you can recreate and simulate all of the utilitarian applications of humans, but you can't recreate the, the formal cause of humans or the essential sanctity and dignity and weirdness of humans. Humans have a place and deserve a place in the future. And unless we take conscious action now to retrieve human values and embed them in the digital infrastructure, we are going to keep making algorithms designed to repress the very humanity that I'm arguing we should keep. So you obviously know what the elevator pitch is. So you're you're in this crazy building right here. You get in an elevator. Elon Musk walks on. You have to give him an elevator pitch for humans. Well, I don't want anything from Elon Musk. Sure, but just give me give me the pitch for humanity. <laughs> well, if you read the book, you'll really get it. Mm. Um, 
the the pitch for humanity that you don't want to hear is that we're conscious. We're conscious. And it turns out consciousness is not an emergent phenomenon. It's not something that just happens because matter is more and more complex. Consciousness actually is the precursor to matter. Consciousness was here before. Matter gets good enough to be able to broadcast some of it or tune some of it in, so you got a good frequency. I mean, I can tell you got a great show playing, and I got a pretty good show playing now. But we're downloading this stuff, and computers don't do that. Yeah. It's a different thing. I mean, whether you're going to use Gödel's theorem or Aristotle or Torah or Jesus, we are more than the sum of our parts. We are weird. I mean, watch a David Lynch movie. What is that? Mm-hmm. What is that? That is a celebration of the fact that you don't need a story with a beginning, middle, and an ending. Better than that, try explaining a David Lynch movie to someone and right. why you enjoyed it. Or what's the difference between a David Lynch movie and any other Netflix series? Mm-hmm. The Netflix series have spoilers in them. Anything with a spoiler mm-hmm. kind of sucks because it means that if I share – I mean, there's no spoiler in a Lynch movie. You know, it's like, what do you say? Oh, it turns out Laura Palmer is this. It's like, I mean, the only spoiler that was in that first original Twin Peaks, they didn't even want to put in there. They made them do it because they, they the producers said, Lynch, you got to tell people who the who yeah. killed Laura Palmer. They're going to get really angry. He's like, okay, well, I'll make it a character, but it's not really that character anyway. But it's a uh, uh, humans, unlike computers, humans can contend with paradox. We can sustain ambiguity. Computers can't. Computers resolve. Even fuzzy logic and all that, it finally comes down to is it a one or is it a zero? Human beings can live in the liminal place between one and a zero. That's where life is. That's where mystery is. I understand we're living in a world where we want to iron that out because the AOL algorithms can't figure out what bucket to put you in if you keep that fuzziness, that weirdness, that quirkiness alive. But that anomalous behavior, that liminal space is where the human spirit lives. Speaking of putting things in buckets, obviously people have long tried to, for their own sanity, separate science and technology from spirituality. These seem like things that you've embraced. Was there a point where you were sort of like fighting against more religious ideas versus scientific and technology? Yeah. I mean, I got problems with, with religions and spirituality for a few reasons. One, because I saw how the New Age movement became a pyramid scheme, you know, and it made me blame the New Age movement when I really should have just blamed capitalism for being that good at infecting everything it finds. But there's a reason why it's so easy for cult leaders to exploit their followers. Right. The same way that algorithms exploit mm. their users. You yeah. know, um, So there was that. There was uh, uh, uh I had friends who got involved in cults, and I was like, and and, import, and I saw really important, smart people. Yeah. Really, I mean, I won't even say their names, but but people that we would all super respect fall for ridiculous cult leaders, and that's when I realized if the head of the you know Buddhism movement and the head of this and the head of that, if they can fall for a cult leader, then none of this stuff is real. It's all friggin' fake. There was that. There was the my my. Uh, uh, distaste for narratives and story and Joseph Campbell and all this. And it was like, oh, another metaphor for how humans are It got annoying to me because of how easy it seemed to make everything. And, oh, we're just on a hero's journey. And, um, And so I wanted people to be able to find ethics without 
any squishy, murky BS thing. In other words, that you don't need to believe in a in in an Eden origin story. You don't need to believe in God in order to believe that human beings deserve a place in this world. But my my commitment to that line of thinking to for for values to be entirely emergent from logic and intelligence and kind of Vulcan wit, it was missing something. And it it denied that we really have no idea what's going on here. We have no idea. And I'm not saying there has to be a God or, or something weird, but there is, I, I think even scientifically, I would be more on the Lee Smolin side of physics than the, the Big Bang side. I really feel like Time predates matter. Consciousness predates anything. That the, the quantum field gets resolved through human consciousness into something. And um, I'm more comfortable with that. You know, and science just went down a, a wrong turn. Science, because of the Renaissance and the way, you know, the way Francis Bacon understood science, and I wrote about him in the book, he said science is the way that, that man can rape nature, right? Man can hold down nature by the hair and dominate her. And I understand that's what they wanted, you know? So if we dissect things and understand how they work when they're dead, that must also be how they work in vivo when they're alive. But turns out it's not. There is a... a, a uh, vitalism and animism. There is a life. Uh, uh, there's something about life that we don't yet understand, and uh, and it's okay not to understand it. Do you feel like you know more about the world generally than you did 20 years ago? Yeah, I, I must. I mean, <laughs> it does feel like grasping at straw sometimes, though, doesn't I it? I did. Yeah, I don't understand necessarily more about it way it works. I, I do understand about capitalism now, and I was naive in the '90s to mm. think that oh, we're just going to rave ourselves to the next level. Yeah. You know, I didn't realize that capitalism just fills everything. There's an appeal in the idea of the invisible hand, in the idea yeah. that it's a sort of a self-correcting ship. Well, I would rather yeah, self-correcting ship and capitalism are two different things. The market, even Adam Smith's marketplace, is not dominated by venture capital. Adam Smith's marketplace is dominated by small businesses who are all trading with each other. It's optimized for the velocity of transaction, not the extraction of value by a few, you know, monolithic monopoly players. So, but that's, that's another story. That's another book. Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, available for $9 on, you know, on the nearest uh, monopoly book platform. (laughs) They're not self-help books. Your book isn't necessarily one that somebody's going to see in a... How to get steel See in an airport and say, you know, I'm going to read this on a a two-hour flight and then this goal figured out, right? Right. But I do think that it is very important to have optimism and hopefulness, especially in this very dark moment. So I, I want you to leave me and the listeners with a little optimism about the, the sort of the, the future that you see in technology and how it relates to society. Well, yeah. I mean, the beauty of seeing the dehumanizing effects of technology and capitalism and algorithm everywhere is that every single one of those places is also an opportunity to flip it. Every single company that you're in, every transaction that you have, every sale that you make, everything that you pitch is an opportunity to connect to the other in a way you didn't before. You know, if you start to see your sales, your meetings and everything as the excuse to get people together in a room, all of a sudden your company, your enterprise, your family, your school, your classroom, your organization becomes human-centered rather than object-centered. So the humans, instead of the humans serving the mission, the mission starts 
start serving the humans. And that is, I promise you, that is 10 seconds away for any person at any time in their life. How do we get there, though, in a larger sense in, in a society? Start in the small sense. If everybody's yeah. doing it, it's happening. It scales up by itself. You know, that's the thing. It's not an industrial age solution. It is a human-to-human solution. But there's all these billions of humans to do it. You never want anything to be final. It, it did sound like you've got a little bit of f- finality when it, when it comes to this book in terms of this maybe a chapter of your life ending. But, I mean, you don't, you don't see foresee yourself not writing books and not, not grappling with these ideas moving forward, do you? Those are two different things. Sure. I don't know right now if books are the best way mm. to reach – people. Having written all these books about things and now written a book that is a book, right? This book, the reason to read this book is to read this book for the experience of reading this book and being changed. This particular mission right now, raising a kid, doing my team human conversations, going out and trying to help people reconnect with one another, that's what I'm about now. So, you know, for the first time in finishing a book and putting out a book, I'm not thinking about the next one. Always a pleasure catching up with Douglas Rushkoff. Team Human is the name of the book and the podcast. You can check out all of this stuff over at Rushkoff.com. Thanks so much to him for taking the time to do that. Really lovely conversation. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening to the program. If you like the show, there are a number of ways to support us. You can rate and review us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or on Spotify, YouTube now, anywhere where you happen to get your podcasts. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Tumblr. That's rylcast.tumblr.com. That is the first and best place to get all of your R-I-Y-L related information. If you have any feedback, it's rylcast at gmail.com. And that's about all we got for this week. So stick around because we are going to be back just about this time next week with another episode of R-I-Y-L. 